Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is August the 29th, 2017. This is episode 2075 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Tuesday, but it's not going to be the Just Jack show today with a single topic. We're going to do a listener feedback show because feedback builds up. And if I don't do a feedback show every week, I end up way behind. I'm always behind on feedback, but you know I don't like to get any further behind than I have to. Yesterday, we kind of did a special show. And we did that for the purpose of um, telling you guys what was going on with CAC teams and Hurricane Harvey and some greater coverage on that. So today we'll do our typical Monday show. Here's what I have today. I have a question on victimless crimes that have potential victims. Doesn't make sense? It will when I read it. It's a sincere question. Um, and I have like some, uh, some help on this one from my buddy Vin Armani. I didn't even notice when the guy sent me the question. He CC'd Vic, and he was asking both of us this. And this morning when I was putting the show together, I noticed Vic had responded to it. So I'll give you Vic's response and my expansion on this question. Um, we have a soldier in San Antonio that reports on Harvey's impact on him, uh, which is different than you might think. Uh, we have, what does it mean that the IRS is now tracking Bitcoin? Does that really matter, and how does it matter? We have feedback on the Tuttle Twins books. That's uh, an interesting series that we'll talk a little bit about. Uh, we have, what does a future with Twitter, Google, and Facebook bans look like? Are we seeing 1984 rise out of the, the technocrats here? Um, training a nippy puppy. I wanted to put lots of variety in today's show. Uh, more on the death of retail and the potential of Estcoin. Estonia's, Estonia's proposed cryptocurrency, and something that I don't think is being said about what Estonia is really doing in the world today and why they're really doing it. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Jeff has been a great supporter of the show, guys. He's been with us for years. I think like he's maybe the third or fourth person to sign up as a sponsor, and he's still with us, like, you know, almost eight years, I guess, as a sponsor. He, of course, has Berkey water filtration systems. What else would you expect to get from the Berkey guy? How about a lot of other great stuff for your prepping needs? You can find his website at directive21.com. If you are not using a Berkey water filter system, I'm not going to say you're wrong. What I'm going to say is this. If you're not using a water filtration system, you're wrong because you're, you're risking your future, your health, your life. Because as I've said before, when problems exist in a water supply, you always find about them after they happen, not before. Which means you're always drinking and using the water without the aid of filtration prior to it. Now, what I'll add to that is, you know, there are good water systems other than Berkey. I think it's the best one the most economical one, and the one you should be using. But in the end, make your own decision, but don't go without filtered water. It's just too important to your health and your family's health. Next up today, KnifeKits.com. Hey, I'll tell you what, I really think KnifeKits.com is a great place for, you know, those father-son projects, for one example of things. To be able to take something that is basically the outline blank of a knife, Choose your own handle materials, get some pins, maybe get some knowledge if you don't have it already. Do some, some basic work, epoxy the handles on, finish them, and have something that you truly created. That's a great thing for anybody, but what, what a great father-son project. And what I really like about Knife Kits is it encourages people to learn how to do things. Because our nation is seriously lacking, especially the most recent several generations, seriously lacking in hard skills, how to do stuff. 
What better way to start that journey into hard skills than learning to make awesome knives? For some people, it even turns into a side hustle or a business. Check them out today, knifekits.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year in history. The year is the year 52. I have Trying to Drain the Fusin Lake from David Verne. The Fusin Lake is the third largest lake in Italy and has no natural outlet. The Romans have wanted to drain the lake for years to gain fertile soil underneath the farm and eliminate the source of malaria outbreaks. For the past 11 years, 30,000 workers have been digging a 3.5-mile tunnel to drain the lake. To celebrate the completion of this ambitious project, Claudius stages an enormous naval battle on the lake, almost 100 ships and 19,000 criminals as gladiators. The banquet was laid out for the hundreds of spectators near the new outflow, and after the pomp and ceremony that accompanies grand openings, the tunnel was opened. It was quickly discovered the tunnel had too tight of a bend, and the water washed out the area while spectators fled for safety. This wasn't one of Claudius' Claudius's proudest moments, and Narcissus blamed Agrippina for the failure. To the Romans' credit, the Fusine Lake will not be drained successfully until 1877 by a Swiss engineer. Um, the plan used to be the plain that used to be the Fusine Lake is now one of Italy's most productive agricultural regions. The draining project served a purpose, but Italy has to be careful not to screw the area up. The big, biggest example of draining a lake going horribly wrong is the All Sea. In the 1960s, Soviet infrastructure projects diverted the rivers flowing into the sea for irrigation. Now what used to be the world's fourth largest lake, if you include the salt lakes, is 90% gone. The Akram Desert occupies most of the former lake bed, a fishing industry that supported 40,000 fishermen and pr produced one-sixth of Soviet Union's fish supply has completely disappeared. The soil in the area is so salty that the crops are flushed with water four times a day. By the way, that makes the problem worse over time. It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And the dust storms created by the exposed land have caused respiratory illnesses and other diseases to skyrocket. I live in Michigan surrounded by massive bodies of fresh water and can't imagine living there without them. One struggles with why one would drain a resource like a lake. Now, of course, at the time, malaria was a much bigger problem than it is today. We didn't know the things we did. So uh, you, you can look at something and say, well, that's an eyesore that kills people, and it could be growing food. So I, I guess I get that. What, what intrigued me was the what was the size of the lake. And it turns out it's about 35,000 acres. And I look around me, and we have lakes. There's a lake that I fish on uh, called Eagle Mountain Lake. And it's a pretty damn big lake. But it's about 8,700 acres. <laughs> 8,700 acres. So... You're talking 4.25 of those in this, this region. This was an inland sea. I mean, lakes that are in this size are lakes like Lake Louisville and Ray Roberts around here. And they were massive engineering projects to put them there, to make the lake. And all this effort was done to drain a lake. I don't think this would happen in a modern developed country today. Today we are... I think we've gotten more in touch with the concept that holding water is a good thing. Um, but it does seem like this one, in one way or another, worked out. And uh, it's an odd thing. I, I, that's a part of history I was not aware of. Uh, we also have another segment today from uh, Southpaw Ben. He says, Tyridates I of Armenia forms the Astrakrid dynasty. This year, Armenia is invaded by King Volgasis I of Parthia, who was able to take the capital city of Arasat 
After doing so, he proclaimed his younger brother, Tyridates, as king, thereby violating a treaty that had been signed during the reign of Phyrates IV that gave Rome exclusive right to appoint and crown kings in Armenia. And it's been made a, as it had been made a Roman dependency. Tyridates will rule for two years before his reign is briefly interrupted in 54 AD by the overthrown king Rhodomaritus, uh, returning when Tyridates has to withdraw due to winter epidemic. Uh, my take by South Paben. This period in Armenian history is almost as bad as a Roman soap opera, so we'll return to the story a few times as uh, intrigue briefly flare up. In 51, there had been a mess with Armenia caused by a Roman procurator, 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 invading and ravaging the country and recognizing Rodemitsis as king illegally. After that, after he had murdered his uncle under uncle to take power, this nearly prompted the governor of Syria to send legions to repair the damages, but recalled them to avoid provoking a war with Parthia. This turns out to be merely a delay to war, not prevent it. Apparently, there is nothing straightforward when Rome is involved during this era. I think what I see in this is that everybody wants to control their own little kingdom, fiefdom, or empire. Everybody that's a tyrant, everybody that is a sociopath wants to control others. And at this time, you do it through being a king, being a governor, being an emperor. And it always changes the names of those things, but the motivation to control others of psychopathy is still quite prevalent in our world today. On that note, before we get into your subject matter today, I do want to remind you you can help support the show by joining the Member Support Brigade. To learn more, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. Those of you who have had headaches with PayPal in the past, we now take straight-up credit cards, so you can join the MSB with a straight-up credit card if that's what you'd like to do. That's all I'll say about that today, because I want to get into this. This is kind of a, kind of a fantastic lead story question here today. I, I really kind of like it. So again, this one actually came to me and Vin Armani, uh, of course, of the Vin Armani Show. By the way, Vin will be my guest tomorrow to discuss his new book on self-ownership and the concept of self-ownership as a whole. Um, in fact, I'm in, I want to make sure you guys know, Vin and I don't always agree on everything. We're having a pretty interesting debate on his YouTube channel right now, and he's proving actually to be more right than I was as we get through the whole thing, though we don't have 100% consensus on an issue right now yet. It might be interesting to get over and see the show we put out yesterday and see our discussion. It's how two people that actually are informed have a discussion versus saying, no, you're stupid. Anyway, this comes from Chris, and I just like scanned it and didn't really even notice that he was you know, emailing both of us. But he, again, he emailed me and, and Vin. He said, hey, guys, you've both given me plenty to think about over the past number of months, and for that I thank you. A simple question of perspective. How do you feel about laws that have potential victims that are inherently dangerous but no actual victim? Examples, impaired driving, other traffic-related driving offenses that are inherently dangerous, such as running a red light or using an unsafe lane change or careless driving. Uh, also, unlawful gun possession, such as a sawed-off shotgun, Chris, from Canada. Here's what Vin says, and uh, I'll give you my follow-up after I give you like the whole back and forth between them. Uh, he says, the principle, you cannot delegate a right that you do not have. If someone steals your car, I do not have the right to apprehend the thief and keep your car. Only you have the right to that stolen property. It is your property. If you leave your car unlocked, I don't have a right to force you at gunpoint to lock your car, even if unlocked cars might potentially encourage thieves to hang around the neighborhood. 
If you drive carelessly, or even if you aren't driving carelessly and you're just momentarily distracted and you rear-end my car, you are liable for damages to my car. I have a right of compensation. If you rear-end Jack's car, I do not have a right of compensation. If you narrowly avoid rear-ending either of our cars, no one has a right to compensation. Quote, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, end quote, from the Declaration of Independence. The idea of that statement is that government derives their powers from the rights delegated to them by individuals. If there is no victim, as in the above example, where does government derive the right to take my property, a fine, or liberty, imprisonment? If no individual is in, entitled to compensation, from where do the government agents, who are, after all, just other individuals, derive the right to demand compensation? You may be deathly allergic to peanuts, but you do not have the right to threaten violence against anyone who cooks with peanut oil. You have the right to not eat at their house or restaurant. You do not eat at their restaurant. You have the right to be informed, particularly if you take responsibility and ask if they use peanuts. If they're using peanuts and they tell you they aren't, you have the right to compensation for whatever injury occurs as a result of their negligence. You can transfer those rights and no more to any agent so you you any agent you so choose to act on your behalf. Now examine your examples again in the light of this principle. Stay free, Vin. I like that because he doesn't actually tell them what to think. He gives them something to think about. He says, and then this is the response that Chris has. He says, Vin, with this one I see some stuff that does give the government a right to control. That is a right to allow people to drive a car on their property. So with the car, i.e. impaired driving, morally an officer couldn't arrest you if you caused no harm to anyone or their property, but they could just as easily remove your ability to drive on public roadways by taking away your license as they belong to the state. Having said that, what if you then break those rules by driving anyway? They aren't going to disallow you from being in public spaces. It's an interesting thought process. Ideally, though, with no state land, this issue would resolve itself. That's a very important little statement there. Um, And this is what Vince says in response to that. Who gave the officer the right to decide what constitutes proper behavior on a public roadway? Does any individual have the right to determine that in relation to another individual? Do you have a right to enforce your preferences with me? So from whom did that officer acquire such authority? Um, Chris says, well, it isn't truly a public roadway. The land belongs to somebody, government. So in that capacity, they can make the rules for its use the same way I can make rules for my own house. I'm kind of conflicted on this opinion, though, because this could then apply to any law they want, including all sorts of immoral ones. I am not sure how I rationalize this part in my head. I get your rational and logic works on most things, but it didn't really answer the question as to our rights as property owners versus the government's rights as property owners. Uh, this is what Vin says in response. Well, government can't own anything. Only individuals can own things. Only individuals can create property by mixing their labor with natural resources. How did the government, a fictitious agency, come to own the land? And if government owns it like you own your house, where is the title document? I would suggest purchasing my new book on self-ownership for a complete breakdown of the concept of ownership itself. It is because you don't have a complete understanding of ownership by design that you are having difficult rationalizing government behavior in your head. One, you get a, once you get a firm grasp on ownership itself, the behavior of the state actors is not hard to rationalize. It is simply irrational. Ben, I, I want to go back to the original question and read it again so that we get this in context because I think that there's a very important component here that needs to be separated out in the examples. Chris says, you've both given me plenty to think about over the past number of months, and for that I thank you. A simple question of perspective, how do you feel about laws that have potential victims and are inherently dangerous but no actual victim? Examples, impaired driving, other traffic-related offenses inherently dangerous such as red light or unsafe lane change, and careless driving. Unlawful gun possession such as a sawed-off shotgun, Chris from Canada. Okay, I think 
there's, there was a thing that was like on Sesame Street or the Electric Company or something like that back when I was a kid. And we had four channels, ABC, NBC, CBS, and PBS. And I had to go out when, when there was two of the channels that we had to ch turn the pole that, that went up to the big antenna a little bit to the left or right so the other channels would come in clear. And I would go out there and my dad would say, a little more, a little more, back, okay, come back in. And if he wanted to go back to the other channels, it's like, that's how old this is, right? But it was on one of those PBS shows that I watched when I was a kid because that's what you got to watch when you were a kid back then. That there was a song, one of these things is not like the other, one of these things is not the same. Something, something, now it's time to play our game. You had to pick, they would usually give you four instead of three. You had to pick out one thing that wasn't like the other. So they might show you an apple and a grape and a pear and a carrot. Well, a carrot's not like the other because it's a vegetable and the other ones are fruits. Got it? Okay. So one of these things is not like the other. Impaired driving, reckless or careless driving, or possessing a sawed-off shotgun. Which one of these is not like the other? And not just that it's different, because one involves cars and one involves guns. Driving, if you are completely effed up drunk, has a reasonable contention that you could damage somebody, harm somebody, cause some kind of problem for you, in the very concept that you're doing it. Driving 150 miles an hour, changing lanes is like a, a maniac and acting like an idiot. It is reasonable that your actions could result. It is not just reasonable. Both of those things, there's a high probability that if it's continued long enough, that some sort of damage or injury could occur to another person. Now, self-ownership absolutely applies. And that which you can delegate and cannot delegate absolutely applies. I don't disagree with anything that's been said. But at least let's get things categorically separated first. Okay? So... Does my possession of an illegal weapon, whether it's a shotgun or frickin' nunchucks or a machine gun, represent an inherent risk to the safety and security of another person by its very nature? In other words, you can't drive, and I'm not talking about, because we'll get into this in a second, I'm not talking about the people that are just over the legal limit or whatever, and road piracy and all this other shit. I'm talking about somebody, when you look at me, go, that some bitch should not be behind the wheel of a car. I mean, staggering, stupid, drunk, pissing on himself, right? That action does have potential in and of itself, with nothing added to it, that you could kill somebody. Right? Don't get technical yet. Right, and it actually increases the likelihood that you would kill somebody over just driving your car, you know, at the speed limit or a little bit over sober. It is more likely that you'll kill somebody. We know this. If I have a Browning bar, it is no more likely that I'm going to harm somebody with it than if I have a brick. So those they just don't go together. So I would take anything that's like the possession of something. Unless it involves the actual activity, it's not even worthy of consideration in this question. And it's important we do that because then all of the things that you're struggling with, you cut them in half. And then you go down to what Vin was saying about self-ownership. Okay, so again, who owns the road? Now, you can take the purest view, which is where Vin is at this, and as a pure, on the purest level, I agree with Vin 100%. The government does not have a right to the road because the government doesn't own the road because the government's claim on the road is illegitimate. However, we do live in a modern society where things don't quite work that way, right? But let's take a look at what, what Vin's contending here. 
They say, hey, I don't have the right to arbitrarily decide that you're driving too fast on, on a particular road. We've, we've, we haven't, I, I, we, I wouldn't even say abdicated, but we have accepted that the state has that role. They put up a sign that says 70 miles an hour, let's say, on a, a particular stretch of road. Now, I want you to think about this. You got some guy that's really, really cautious. He drives like Mr. Magoo. He's got his you know, hands are white-knuckled when he makes a turn of more than about three degrees. He's got his seat all the way forward. His, his, his nose is a couple inches from the windshield, and he's tooling along at 55 miles an hour. Somebody comes by 70 miles an hour. Zoom. How does he react to that? Freaking crazy nut job, idiot, driving too fast. Even though the guy's driving at, at exactly the speed limit. Because in his opinion, that's too fast for safety. Now, what is too fast for safety? What is too fast for safety? I mean, do you guys, if you're, if you're old like me and you ever had the TV antenna, you had to turn with a wrench, huh? then do you, do you remember the huge controversy in the 70s about 55-mile-an-hour speed limit being raised to 65? And the absolute doom and gloom prognosticated if it was done, that there would just be people dead everywhere? I mean, it was, it was a, a massive scare attack. There's pictures of Carter. You know, Jimmy Carter was our president at the time with a 55-mile-an-hour speed limit. 55 keeps us alive. Huge campaign against this. This is going to be terrible. The world will end. Well, the speed limit was raised to 65 miles an hour. States had a decision whether they wanted to raise it that high or not. And what happened? Square root of F all. Nothing. There was no massive number of increased traffic accidents, but somebody had randomly picked a number that seemed reasonable given the situation at the time and assigned it and then enforced it on others without their consent. However, I will concede that of all the things that government does, probably the most benign is providing and policing our roadways. It is probably, it's certainly more, like everybody says, we need roads and schools. What they do with the school system is absolutely sinful because it's indoctrination. But providing our infrastructure, I, I have better ways for that to be done. But if I made a list of the atrocities of government, trust me, the, the building of roads and bridges and infrastructure, their maintenance... And the enforcement of some level of safety on them, while it would make the list, would be pretty low. Because this would be the alternative. The alternative would be, yes, you have private roadways. And you pay a usage fee for them. Which, by the way, other than the fact that government has complete monopoly on this, would be no different than right now. Right now, you pay a usage fee every time you go on a road. Something pays for that road. Something pays for that road. Primarily gas taxes and motor fuels taxes are the primary things that pay for that road. And then in some instances, tolls. What's the difference if the roads are privately owned and you pay to use them? And you, you pay a fee based on you know, what it costs to maintain those roads. If you do that, then Joe has a road and Tom has a road. Whose road do you want to use? They both have their own rules for it. Now, I think that if you had a private system, you would have some level of prohibition against certain activities. 
including how intoxicated you might be and how fast you might drive. But in that instance, you would have a choice. You would have a choice. And the person that would, would, would set up or the entity that would set up and define that limitation would have rightful claim to the property because they've derived the funding to provide the service and the asset from voluntary participation rather than from you know, coercive participation. I don't know how much different it would look, but it would definitely look different. Because right now, I, I hate to put this because I do have respect for law enforcement officers, but we have overt road piracy going on. Well, guys are just running speed speed traps, and he's writing ticket after ticket after ticket for people doing 10, 15 miles an hour over the speed limit, when like 80% of the drivers are doing the same speed, but that's just happened to be the one that went across the radar at the right time. It's just extraction of funds. And I've heard from local officers, you don't understand, our apartment doesn't get that much money, it's not profitable for us to write tickets. First of all, bullshit. Because if it wasn't, you wouldn't have departments that I know for a fact. The only way you can get your overtime is by running speed. Okay, so that would not... Okay, so bullshit. It's not as profitable directly as a lot of people think. Because let's say you get a fine, and that fine is $150. Well, the local department might get 25 bucks out of that. But the government gets all the money one way or another. And then big government hands money back down to little government. That's how this system works. So again, it's it's road piracy. And what I've seen done to people's lives over DUI, and I don't mean people that are staggering and drooling on themselves and pissing on themselves and completely impaired. I'm talking people that they finally get them to blow and they blow a .08, the minimum number to be intoxicated, when just not that long ago the number was .10. 15, 20 years, it was .10 everywhere. Who decided that, okay, well now we're going to move that because we are not bust... So what happened was people started being pulled over and figured out how much they could drink and stay under that limit, and they were pulling people over for it, and yet they would, you know, blow, and they'd go .08, .09. And I know I'm going to hear from somebody, you don't understand, when you're .08, you're drunk off your ass. No, you're not. I think that's a subjective thing. There are people that can drink four beers and drive down the road every bit as good as if they drank no beers. There are people that can drink one beer and they're tossed off their ass. But... You still come back to principle. Where does the state derive the authority? Do you have a right to tell somebody else how fast they can drive or what substances they can use? Or can they do the two things at the same time? And the answer is no, but yes. You do not have the authority on anybody's property, save your own. And that's what it comes down to is who owns the roads? And right now they are managed as what you would call in the old English days as the commons. And the, the state can make a reasonable case that in our current system, whether I agree with it or not, that it has a right to enforce those things and that your acceptance of those is voluntary because you choose to get into your car and drive. I would counter that in our society today, I have to get in my car and drive. But I don't have to get in my car and drive drunk now, do I? But what is the solution? The solution is technological. The solution is technological, and that's what we always have to do. I think when you get in these discussions, like they're interesting, but in the end, well, what are you going to do about it? And I'll save that for a later subject today because we've gone far enough on it. But I agree with Vin in principle, uh, definitely. 
But I also accept the reality of the world that we live in, but owning a gun, etc. If you're going to start saying, like, when you say victim versus potential victim crimes, owning a gun doesn't make me any more likely to commit a crime than not owning a gun. My owning of a gun doesn't have any inherent risk to anybody else until I choose to do something with it. However, if I am actively driving 150 miles an hour on a winding road, my potential to actually cause harm has increased. And I, you, if you're not willing to acknowledge that, then you're not being fair with the question, I guess. Let's go ahead and take another one. How about some thoughts on Hurricane Harvey? This came in on Monday, just to kind of give you a, a time frame. So yesterday, early morning, says Jack. Here are some reflections on the hurricane, even though I wasn't hit with devastation. I hope others are giving you feedback and sharing lessons. I am out on my two-week Army Reserve duty in San Antonio, and it's still raining. I've been watching this very closely since we got our notice that we had to vacate our training location in the hills. A few points to make this easy. One, private organizations, local governments, and the Texas state government and U.S. relief organizations have been doing great things. I agree, while the national government is arguing with each other about what they should do. Don't wait on government. It's, it's mostly local responders and private people doing the most. Right now, HEB has a convoy of food headed to Houston. Just going to say. Two, I ashamedly became part of the milk bread toilet paper crowd in a long line of grocery store with my fellow soldiers because I was away from my home and my unit did not have a plan B. It turned out okay. We were fully supported by active duty post hours later. Uh, I had my ham radio with me and was able to gather information for the unit. It was a great conversation piece. Uh, hey, are you one of those preppers? Yep. <laughs> the hurricane was headed for San Antonio, so I thought at minimum we would have flooding and lose power. I had a lithium-ion battery pack, spare batteries for my ham radio, and wish I had triple of both. Five, the little whip antenna on my radio was not sufficient, and I wish I had brought a longer roll-up antenna for base operations. Six, the ham radio would have gone, world has gone digital and left me behind. I missed a lot of information and chance to communicate with my family in the Midwest because of it. Number seven, the news coverage on the hurricane was 24-7 on the local channels until it died to a Category 1. And then it went back to news about North Korea, Trump, and other programs. Yeah, because the problem's over, right? I mean, the sensationalism is ridiculous. Eight, I am thankful to have a TSP education. I need to educate my commander as to how disasters will impact our mission and how to mitigate those risks. Sergeant First Class, Platoon Sergeant, and MSB member uh, Michael. Michael, well, thanks for, thanks for the feedback. I really appreciate that. I guess one of the things that makes people, especially like a reserve duty or something like that, inherently at risk to this is when you're in the military, you kind of feel like somebody has that covered. Now, I don't mean like you're, you're, you're housing for your family or something like that, but I'm talking about you like when you're deployed, you kind of just feel like, hey, they got this, they got this. And not all the time. In the end, they usually do, which creates a false sense of security. So I think the biggest lesson in all this, except for the ham stuff for you ham guys out there, is... You should never assume that someone else has a base covered that you're capable of covering for yourself. If you can cover it for yourself, you should cover it for yourself. And if someone else also has it covered, we call that redundancy, and that's a good thing. So thanks for the feedback, Michael. I'm interested in hearing feedback from anybody impacted by Harvey so that we can share it with the audience what's going on. Um, the next one is something, I mean, I've seen this all the F over Facebook. Um, the IRS is now tracking Bitcoin. So I've heard a lot about this stuff with um, with Bitcoin. Sorry, that's the 
stupid autoplay of a video on the article I want to read you. Uh, but the person that sent this in is John, and John says, just in case you missed the article, and he sent me a link to a Zero Hedge article. Uh, the first thing I do when I get a Zero Hedge article is I find another source. I generally do that all the time. And I do that to confirm the source, because that's basic journalism 101. If you can't find two sources on something, unless there's extensively mitigating circumstances, i.e., you know, you're, you're looking at the first article released on something that came from Edward Snowden uh, when, it, when the first data dump was, so there's like an extenuating circumstance. Like, the reason there's only one source is there's only one source. Um, so I always look for a second source. But then I generally use the second source, because Zero Hedge is always filled up with hyped-up bullshit commentary. Uh, the IRS is targeting you as a terrorist if you have any Bitcoin at all, which is pretty much what the Zero Hedge article says. So I, I got a you know a more mainstream source here on the same thing, uh, called from Fortune magazine. Here's what Fortune has to say on this, and uh, their title is the IRS has special software to find Bitcoin tax cheats. Uh, it says one benefit of using the digital currency can be is that digital cur currency can be anonymous. Its owners can move money around the world without revealing who they are. Well, in theory, at least in reality, Bitcoin is less secret than people think. I don't know who all these people are that think Bitcoin's anonymous because I've never said that. I've never believed that, and any of us that have been informed about this topic for the last friggin' ever have told you it's not completely anonymous. That it can be if you do things a certain way. Okay. The latest reminder of this comes via a report of, that the Internal Revenue Service is using software to unmask Bitcoin users who have failed to report profits. According to a contract unearthed by the Daily Beast, the IRS is paying a company called Chain Analysis to help identify owners of digital wallets that users employ to store their Bitcoins. In a letter to the IRS, the co-founder of Chain Analysis says the company has information on 25% of all Bitcoin addresses and that it, it deploys millions of tags to help track identity transactions. Here's a screenshot of a paragraph from the letter. Um, transactions in Bitcoin are made with pseudonyms, which need to be tied to real-world identities in order to gain insights about the parties involved in a transaction and their purpose. Our tool has information on 25% of all Bitcoin addresses, which account for approximately 50% of the Bitcoin, all Bitcoin activity. We additionally have over 4 million tags on Bitcoin addresses that we have scraped from web forums and leaked to data sources, including dark market forms, Mt. Gox deposit, and withdrawal information. The decision by the IRS to license the software of Chain Analysis, which is based in Switzerland, when an office in New York appears to be part of the agency's larger campaign to target digital currency users who have paid to fail ta failed to pay tax. As Fortune reported earlier this year, the IRS claims only 802 people declared a capital gain or loss related to Bitcoin in 2015. 802 people in the world or in the United States anyway, okay, in 2015. This is significant since the price of Bitcoin soared from around $13 to over $1,100 between 2013 and 2015, and hundreds of thousands, likely millions of Americans, bought and sold digital currency during that time. In other words, there are many people who face Bitcoin-related tax trouble, and the IRS is tracking some of them down. Um, there are indications, though, the IRS is forcing only the bigger fish, for instance. In the agency's ongoing legal battle with popular digital currency exchange, Coinbase, the IRS agreed to limit its request for customers' records only to accounts with transactions over $20,000. Nonetheless, the IRS's use of chain analysis software is likely to make some Bitcoin owners uneasy. Meanwhile, on Bitcoin forums, some have expressed resentment in, against exchanges like Coinbase, Kraken, and Mt. Gox for allegedly storing wallets in such a way that analytic companies like Chain Analysis or BitSeer can identify individual users. And I'll leave it there. You can read the rest of the article if you want. I have a link to this one and the one that I've bashed on, um, on, on uh, I'm sorry, 
zero hedge, so you can read both of them in full if you want to. Let me tell you what I think this really means. I don't think it means that much. Um, this type of technology can be used to identify a lot of things. However, you also have to look in the context of like, so what is the IRS looking for when it comes to finding tax cheats? Is it looking for all of them or is it looking for some of them? It, it's looking for the big fish. It, let me put it in perspective. If you file a 1040EZ, the, the, the basic short tax form, and you make less than $100,000 a year, your odds of ever being audited are less than a half a percent. And as your income goes up and the way that you file taxes changes, the odds of an audit increase. And they're actually dramatically low uh even for individuals making up to a quarter million dollars a year. I think it's something in the neighborhood of less than 3% for self-employed individual making under a quarter million dollars a year, especially if they're doing under a quarter million dollars a year in revenue. Okay, That's really more like the more revenue there is, the more potential there is for cheating, the more the big payoff for the IRS. Because IRS agents are actually judged in their job performance based on how profitable they are, as sick as that is. It's the case. So... If you think the IRS wants to put you on a list and target you because you have a couple hundred dollars or a couple thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin, you, you'd probably be wrong. You're probably not worth the effort, and they probably have ways they think that this will all shake out in the long term anyway um, with greater guidance and greater acceptance of the fact this is not going away. What they're looking for is the guy that made a million dollars last year didn't pay a dime of tax on it. However, again, was the gain realized? If I bought... Bitcoin when it was 13 bucks and now it's sitting at four grand. How much money have I made according to income tax? And the answer is zero. Until I sell it or spend it, I've made zero. Now, it's not clear to me if it's a taxable event if I convert it to Ethereum. I would say, in my interpretation, no, because it's a like for like exchange. It's a cryptocurrency for cryptocurrency. I haven't realized the gain. I haven't sold it to cash, and I haven't purchased anything different with it. It's like if I convert dollars to euros, and the euro goes way up, I haven't made any money until I cash the euros back into to dollars, or until I spend the euros on something. That's my understanding. I could be wrong. But I do know this. Like this chain analysis tool tracking Bitcoin... It can't tra track Zcash. And if you use the randomization functionality in Dash, it can't track Dash. And if you look at something like Coinbase, the only way you're going to get a, a wallet address associated with an individual is if Coinbase releases that information. Now, people that have been publishing send Bitcoin to this address. Well, you bet that's been scraped. You bet that's been scraped. How big a fish are those people? How big a fish are those people? And, and the reality is the IRS has not issued sufficient guidance on this yet. But they've issued guidance sufficient to this. If you bought $10,000 worth of Bitcoin and you sold it for $200,000, you are obligated to pr to pr to claim a $190,000 gain. That's, that's abundantly clear. So what's abundantly clear is what they would go after, at least first. However, I think that the long term here is, 
either technologies begin to be integrated into Bitcoin that prevent this and make things more anonymous, or people begin to see this weakness in Bitcoin and begin to migrate to things like Dash and Zcash. And the reality is the world, this world is so big and so many numbers, it's very difficult to pare down. And there's also some legal issues here. Like, if the, if the data is not publicly available, and what I mean by that is, if your ownership of that address is not publicly available, can the IRS, without warrant, obtain it legally and use it against you? Now, if they say to Coinbase and other providers, we want an annual reporting, as long as it can be done under current law, then you can get associated with an address. Essentially, your address becomes an account number. But here's the other side of that. Let's say that I have Bitcoin and I transfer it to another address. You would have to prove a couple things. One, that I had somehow wait, profited from that action. So to even do that, you would have to prove that I don't control that address. Somebody else controls that address. That I no longer have access to it. Because if I move Bitcoin to 20 different addresses, just because I feel like it, as long as they're all my addresses, again, there's no taxable event. I've simply put money from one account into another account. This is, of course, being hyped by the people that make a living from hype. It's not a matter of no concern. But it is nowhere near the IRS is putting everybody that owns Bitcoin on a terrorist list. And that's irresponsible yellow journalism. I think that you have to look at it this way. Especially if you are obtaining Bitcoin through a cash exchange like Coinbase, you have to treat it like any other commodity. Just because it's Bitcoin doesn't mean that it's exempt from taxation. If you want to play in the world of the gray market, the Agora and cryptocurrency then Bitcoin is probably not your best bet. But if you're going to use Bitcoin, then you need to use it strategically in a way where it's not publicly traceable, where there's no record of your name and that address. And there are ways to do that. One of them would be for mining. That would be one way to obtain things completely anonymously. The reality is once you have Bitcoin that's not tied to you by name, you can do anything you want in the world of cryptocurrency for now. Exchanges like Bittrex, they don't even know who you are. You could use a completely random address, email address, that's completely anonymous, and set up a Bittrex account. I mean, and, and you don't ever touch dollars inside Bittrex. So if you have Bitcoin being mined to a Bittrex wallet address, and then you have that Bitcoin being converted into some other cryptocurrency and set to some other wallet. It's not like they can just go, oh, we know exactly who this is. It doesn't work that way. And there is a there is a finite limit to how much resource can be invested in trying to track somebody down over $1,000 by the IRS. There's a, every organization, even government, has limits. They're after the Bitcoin millionaires and billionaires that are paying no taxes. And, and the reality is they're going to get one. They're going to get at least one very big one, and they're going to make a public spectacle of it, 
And you watch these yellow journalists at places like Zero Hedge lose their freaking mind when that happens. This is something to keep an eye on. And I would just say if you are publicly buying Bitcoin with cash, then you have to look at it like buying any security with cash from a tax standpoint. If you don't, sooner or later it could very well bite you in the ass. If you want to do things completely, completely kind of in the gray world on cryptocurrencies, then you need to use technologies that actually guarantee that you are anonymous. And Bitcoin has never been that. Never been that. However, it can be a lot harder than they're making it out. There's Bitcoin sitting in an account right now from the people that did their cry now want ransomware. They don't know who owns it. Think about that before you overreact to stories like this. Lots of Michaels today. Um, Michael in Florida says, Hey Jack, I have a comment about the Tuttle Twins book series by Connor Boyack. I think I first heard about these books on your show. But can't be positive. Here's a link for the books. Uh, yeah, you probably did. We, we had Connor on. He's right out of the TSP community, definitely. I said, I bought these books over one year ago when my daughter was just four. I knew she was not ready for them, so I placed them on the shelf. She is now five, almost six, and in kindergarten. We have started reading one of the books together each night before bed. She loves the books, and more importantly, she understands the libertarian message that are shown through the Tuttle Twin Adventures. Just thought all of your listeners should know about these great books for kids that teach this, that about some of the problems government imposes on businesses and individuals. Sometimes those problems are not foreseen by government. Other times they are foreseen. But it is important for kids to understand these lessons, which are not taught in most schools throughout the world. I highly recommend these books to keep parents to all parents to get and read with their children. Anyway, great show. Keep up the amazing work, Michael, in Florida. Michael, I agree. I think this is one of the best things you can do for your young people. If I find a better series to recommend for young people or one equally as good, I will recommend it. If I find one half as good, I'll recommend you add it. That's how good it is. Um, and I, I, I kind of wanted to speak just briefly on this segment to the importance of teaching these things to our children. I think the most important time in the life of an individual to be taught the basic principles of libertarianism as is as a child. And maybe not for why you would think. It's exactly the opposite of why the state is so interested in indoctrinating them into statism as a child. Statism is an inherent, is, is an inherently illogical ideal. Okay? Uh, true statism. I, I'm even giving a pass to minarchists here. I'm not going full on voluntarist anarchist jack. Okay? The, the basic premises of like limited government, free market, libertarianism, minarchism, etc. Are, are very counter to like a centrist statist message, but in a way that's very different for a child. And this is what I mean by that. A child, a well-educated young person, when presented with libertarianism, will gravitate towards it wholeheartedly. When presented with a message of statism, they will be repulsed by it. Unless it is wrapped up in some sort of bullshit story or it is reinforced over and over and over and over and over again. That's why the indoctrination takes 13 years of, of compulsory education. It takes 13 years to pound these things into the hearts and minds of young people so that by the time they graduate, when somebody says taxes theft, instead of arguing the concept, they say, but how, who would build the schools and the roads? See, it's a programmed response, isn't it? It's a programmed response. And once you get somebody to be programmed to that response, it's very difficult for them to be open to anything that government's doing it doesn't need to be doing. 
But if you awaken that young mind so that it be, you basically you're inoculating it to this fictitious programming, this fictitious method, uh, this fictitious programming that is, I have to say, the method is actually highly successful. It is a very efficient means of programming children to put them in a collective, to manage them as a collective, to treat them all as equal and the same, even though there's inherent differences to them, to tell them that they have to share even with people who don't really deserve to be shared with. See, I'm all for sharing, but this is the way I look at sharing. Let's say I have enough food to share some of it. Well, I'll share the part that I have available, not all of it because you say so. I'll do it by choice. And if there's 10 people I can share with, and I have enough to share with all 10 of them, but two of them are inherently assholes, I'll keep 20% of it in reserve and figure out what to do it with somebody else later because I'm not sharing with an asshole. What did we learn in school? You should share with assholes. Well, what happens when you share with somebody who's an asshole that incurs asshole behavior? Right? It does. I mean, come on. Of course it does. I can do that and I'll still get my peace? Well, there's no incentive for me not to do it then. So the concept of socialism, and I, I talk about this very, very early on, all the way back in 2008, the very genesis of the show. Socialism is a fine thing, is a voluntary adjective rather than an involuntary noun. Okay, so a voluntary adjective is exactly what I just said. Socialism is the sharing of resources. The voluntary sharing of resources is a great thing. There's a lot of socialism as an adjective going on right now in relief efforts to Hurricane Harvey. People are taking what they have and giving it willingly to those who are in need. And you, you, you can see that the response by those doing it voluntarily, is far ahead of the response by government that does it through involuntary coercion. And again, all of these things make perfect sense, but they're very difficult to accept when you've based your life on a lie. And the longer you've based your life on that lie, the more difficult they'll become to accept. And then you begin to realize why they don't care which side you pick, left or right, as long as you pick one. If you don't pick one, your life's not based on a lie. It just isn't. Even if it's loosely based on a lie, well, we need government, I don't really like it, but you haven't chosen a side, you're not committed. And I don't mean calling yourself an independent and always voting one way or the other. That's, that's, that's not what I mean. What I mean is when you just haven't. Like, you're like, I just don't care what you say, I'm going to judge every single thing independently and make a decision based on morality. When you come up with that viewpoint, which is, which is inherent libertarianism. Because libertarianism is a moral belief system. It might result in an economic system, but it is a before it is anything else, it is a moral belief system, and it is a moral belief system founded on the principle of non-aggression, i.e., it is not acceptable to use force, coercion, or violence on anyone for any reason other than for personal self-defense or the defense of others and their property. That's it. Unless the person you're using force on is doing something to harm somebody else or take rightfully gained property from someone else, force and coercion and violence are wrong. That's a, that's a moral decision. Well, you'd like to believe that that's what our children are taught. You don't hit, you don't push, you don't shove, and we all share. But that's not what they're taught. They're taught basically nonviolence because, hey... You're going to get in trouble if you're violent. So it looks, you see, that's how, that's how the state always works. It's always seductive. It looks nice and shiny. Well, we teach them not to fight. 
But you, 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 we're also teaching them that they're entitled to, a, to an education, to the school that they're receiving, and that as they grow and they get older and they learn more about things in school, they do learn about things like property taxes and other people pay for school. And we need that because we couldn't have it without that. All of these things lead, lead our young people to pick a side. They come out of school and they either think like Republicans or they think like Democrats. Why do you think they do that cutesy thing where the kids vote for who the president's going to be? That's part of the programming. Like, oh, it's an experiment in democracy and it helps them understand the system. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. It's saying literally you have to pick a side. You have to pick a side. It's programming is conditioning. And it's difficult to do to children. It actually is hard. There's a reason sometimes when you give a kid a rule, they just don't care and they run off and do whatever they want. Sometimes it's because they're being just straight up defiant in an instance where they need to learn something so they don't like get killed, like don't run in the street. But in many instances, the reason that children are defiant to arbitrary rules of society is they know that they're arbitrary rules and the rules make no sense to them. We as parents have to be willing to say, listen, I know this doesn't make any sense to you, but at this point I'm just going to tell you you have to do it because it's dangerous to do otherwise. But a lot of society's rules, they just know this inherently makes no sense. So get the message to them young and use things like Tuttle Twins for that. I have a link to where you can get all the books on Amazon from Tuttle Twins today. As is the case, I try to make a lot of variety on these feedback shows. So I have here from Josh in Missouri. Josh says, Jack, how do I keep my dog from drawing blood on every member of the household? Details. We have a three-month-old half-boxer, half-bull terrier named Jonah that has a lot of energy. Myself and the two oldest boys play with the dog a lot, and he gets plenty of time outside, but we are constantly getting bit by his sharp-ass teeth. He's not nipping us on purpose. He has so much energy and that I believe he's just trying to be playful. Our youngest son is two and a half years old, and we have to constantly intervene because he gets scratched pretty good, and the last thing we want is the Department of Making You Sad showing up. My wife is planning on getting him neutered, and we're hoping that will be enough to calm him down. Do you have any feedback and advice on how to give him plenty of attention without getting ourselves harmed in the process? Thanks for all you do, Josh. I have a lot of thoughts here, but I'm going to, I'm going to say this up front. Every dog is different, and not everything that works on every dog will work on every other dog, and it's up to you as a pet parent, right? That's a phrase now that people use for some dumbass reason, to figure out what works for your dog. But here's some things that I've done in my past to deal with dogs like this. Number one, the biting. The biting with puppies is because, just be, let's be honest, dogs don't have hands. They don't have thumbs. They don't have anything opposable. A dog can paw you, but it can't grab with its paw. It can't feel with its paw. It can't make things happen with its paw. And dogs, as pack animals, use biting, both aggressive and non-aggressive, to communicate with other dogs. A pack leader will use a bite to tell a dog that's not the pack leader, hey, it's time to submit. And two puppies will use biting to play with each other. And, and dogs have a very thick skin. Things that, that will draw blood on your skin will not even begin to cause a dog discomfort. I, I see Lucy and Charlie play all the time and they're, they're, you know, they're play fighting, but they're, you know, they're doing their, their dog thing and they're doing stuff with their teeth that I know if they did it to my arm would at least be uncomfortable and to them it's a big game. So part of it is just the puppy beginning to understand, hey, the human has a threshold. You don't want it to be a threshold for pain lower than mine. That's not the psychology that you want in the dog's head because that says to the dog what? I'm more powerful. I'm more powerful. So it's the human has a tolerance 
for this activity that is lower than mine, and the human is in charge, and the human says that I don't get to do that with the human. So we want to use discomfort, okay? Not punishment, discomfort in this as much as possible. So the first thing is the biting. That usually takes place a lot around the hands. Dogs, unlike wolves, like there's been studies done where they take wolves from pups and they train them to be as much like dogs as possible. So they take dogs the same way. And even if the dogs come from feral stock that have been you know, running wild for multiple generations and then they take these pups and they do the same kind of stuff they do with wolves taken out of the environment. Dogs watch human hands. They've evolved with humans for so long that when we point, a dog naturally look. Well, what's he, what's he pointing at? Well, when you do that with wolves, even trained wolves, they tend not to really respond well to pointing. It's not a visual cue for them. So dogs cue in on our hands. So that's usually where we get nipped and bit at by puppies, is legs and hands and lower arms. When I have a pup that chews, and I've had them, uh, Charlie was pretty bad at it. He was, he was pretty aggressive with it. What I do is when they bite, I stick my hand down their throat. Straight in, right down, and I grab it at the base of the tongue, to where the dog goes, and gags. to where And it's got to be consistent, and everybody that's at least capable of doing it responsibly in your home should be doing it. Dog grabs your hand, you grab the dog's, and he gets a gag reflex. Followed by the command, no. Not no, 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 just straight up no. And when you let go, if he comes back to do it again, then you give a pop to the nose. Again, I'm not talking about being harsh, I'm not talking about inflicting a lot of pain. I'm talking about discomfort. I'm talking about enough, right? Enough to make the dog realize this is not acceptable. And if it comes again, then we'll go back down the throat, and we'll keep doing that. And if it keeps going, I'll do it till the dog's damn near ready to puke. Because I'd rather fix this problem now than later. But no needs to always be the command when any behavior is unacceptable. And it needs to be the same command every time, and it needs to be the end No. As the dog learns things like sit, it can be no and then sit. Because it gives him something to do. It occupies the canine brain. That's the number one thing. The other thing that I've seen with young pups like this, and you mentioned being scratched too, so they like to jump. Okay, Again, discomfort. Dog jumps. What most people do, they push the dog down. They push the dog back. What is the dog doing when it jumps on you? If you translate it to human terms, he's pushing you. Why? This is how they play. So when you push him back, what are you doing? What are you doing in the, in the canine brain? The human is engaging in my game. I pushed, he pushed back. I'm going to push again, now I'm going to bite. Right? It's all a game because you've engaged. What I do when a dog jumps up, I lift my knee and I let him go chest first into my knee. It's uncomfortable. And they have complete control over how uncomfortable it is. If they come really hard, it's really uncomfortable. If they come really soft, it's not that uncomfortable. And those two things alone tend to get dogs. And again, I'm going to tell you, not all things work with all dogs. These are the things I've used training pups in my life to deal with this issue of jumping, scratching, and biting when it's not aggression, when it is play. And it's always worked for me. But it has to be consistent. It has to be every time. And then the proper behavior should be rewarded calmly. So when the dog jumps up and you say no and he hits your knee and he backs off and you say sit and that dog sits good dog not good dog 
right? What does good dog like that do? It gets the dog all riled up again. We've just settled you down. Good dog. And maybe you reach out and give, if they're calm and submissive at that point and they're, they're, they're in tune, you reach out and they get pet. If they start biting again, back down with, back down, no. Stop. Okay. Dog's calm. Good dog. And if you can't touch them at that point without re-engaging behavior, stop trying. Leave it just that good dog. Dogs learn pretty quick that term. The master is pleased. And dogs want to please us as pack leaders. I can, I can be sitting on the other side of the room, not engaging with one of my dogs at all, and I can look at them and I can say, good dog. And the way the tail goes. The tail goes. They can't, they cannot not wag the tail because he's pleased. He's happy. That's the relationship that you want with your dogs. That's the pack leader. When he's pleased with me, I'm doing my job well. The other day I was working with Charlie. The turkeys were up on the porch. I wanted the turkeys off the porch. I gave him the command to move the turkeys off the porch. He got a little keyed up, but he didn't lose his shit. I said, easy, 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 stop. And when, he, when they were off the porch, he stopped pushing them. All he pretty much did was walk over to them. Calmest I've seen him do it almost ever. And he turned around and I said, good dog. That was perfect. And you can't tell me the dog didn't know what the word perfect meant. He was just in dog heaven, man. He was jumping in a playful way up to me and thanking me. Like, thank you for thanking me. And I just happy wagging his tail where his ass is going because that concept. So that's always what you're trying to build into the dog. That when I please the pack leader, I have, I have fulfilled my purpose. And one of the things that keeps dogs that are high energy dogs from being overabundant with their energy is to feel that they have a purpose. It's not just activity in of itself. Because when, you know, Charlie's about four years old now, I guess. When he was a pup, there was no time. Like, he can get tired out now. There was no tiring this dog out. Lucy's still in that state. You cannot physically, the dog will come in with the tongue hanging almost completely out of the mouth, touching the ground, panting. Like, it's not going to be able to move anymore. It'll drink some water. It'll lay down, panting on the cold tile floor for 10 minutes. And it gets up like, oh, oh, oh. But if they have a sense of purpose, a sense of duty, and a sense of fulfillment, they get in touch with controlling that energy. The, the bad news for you is dogs generally come into their own with a control of this energy at about two. It's about two years of age where that puppiness really starts to shed, and they, they get more into this kind of subdued role and they're easier to deal with so you you got that time ahead of you but make the best use of it some other things with biting i think one of the most important things a dog can learn is to take food from a hand without biting the hand and the command i use for this is easy it's easy and this is a great way to teach the dog that teeth see my view is unless i've engaged in play that's clear that it's okay for you to put your mouth on my hands. Your teeth as a dog should never touch my skin. Now, I'm not going to beat the dog like some stupid redneck for it, but that is not acceptable unless if we're playing and I'm, I'm kind of shadow, and I shadow box with my dog and I'll play with him and he'll grab my hand and I'll, uh, and, and that's okay in my opinion. Once they're past this stage and they know how to control themselves, right? Um, but if you touch my skin, I'm displeased. So if I, if I give the dog a piece of meat, and when he takes that meat, even without intending to, he doesn't even get excited, he just kind of does it where he doesn't really pay attention, and a tooth touches my hand, I'll go, what did you do? 
And all three of them, right? All three of them, they kind of lower their head. I, I didn't mean it. And I'll immediately get some, another piece and go easy. And they'll take it like, like so gingerly. And one of the other good dog. Reinforcing that behavior. Teeth do not go on skin. Period. So to be able to do that, you have to first start, you, you find a, you know, a suitable treat for your dog and start teaching the dog a, a couple things. One is to take the treat easy and that just command of easy. And when they go anything aggressive, you pull it away and you pop the nose. Really, really softly here. This is just a just a touch. No. And what will happen is the aggression, not at you, because if it's aggressive at you, you've got a different problem. Aggression toward the food, like I got to have it, I got to have it, begins to go down right away. This is works really. Dog needs the sit command before you're going here, though. Okay, so the sit sit command has to be mastered, and then easy. And then when they come really, really slow, you let them have it. And when they take it right the first time, good boy, good girl, whatever pet. Good dog, easy. Good dog, easy. Reinforce that word means what you just did, and you did it right, and the master is pleased. And then you have to get to the point where you go to give them that food, and you say no. Because no, they should have. So now you have the, you should be able to hold a well-disciplined dog. You should be able to hold a piece of freaking steak an inch from their mouth. No, not yet. They should sit there and wait for it. And when you say okay, or break, or whatever your command for your dog is, they should take it just as softly as if you had said easy the entire time and slowly fed it to them. That little drill does a lot of things and a lot of advantages, and it's so important for people with kids. You don't want dogs feeling they have a need to defend their food from any child or member of the family. Dogs that sit around a bowl and growl when someone gets near their bowl have not been properly disciplined and trained. By conveying the fact that I will feed you from my hand under my rules and my conditions and the way that I see fit, and you will obey those commands, says to that dog, but you do not have to worry about me stealing your food. I am the source of your food. I will see to your needs. I am not a competitor for you with your feed. So I think that's another thing to work on. Um, and... Things like being able to put down a piece of food, tell them to stay. All these things just ensue discipline in the dog. So, you know, my dogs, I can set a milk bone right in front of them. Say, no. And they'll sit there and look at you like, okay, I really... They look, you see the eyes go down like, come on, I really want it. You know, and these dogs that I have now are nowhere near as... Like, I had a Brittany Spaniel. I could have set a steak on the ground, and I could have told that dog, no. I could have walked out of the room poured a glass of iced tea and walked back in, and that dog would have been just sitting there looking at it like, man, I can't wait till he says I can have it. You, know, I, you don't have to have that level of discipline. I think with a bird dog, it makes a lot of sense. Um, but that basic discipline is what you're, what you're lacking right now. And the game, you got to understand, like if, you, if the dog bites your hand and you grab the dog like by the end of the jaw, it's not uncomfortable, you're biting back. You stick your fingers down a stroke like it's a gag reflex and say no. They don't like that. And as soon as the dog shows proper behavior, good dog. And again, at the beginning, you cannot be too excited about the fact that the dog was good because it revs them back up. It needs to be just a very simple good, an acknowledgement, good dog. I only wish kids were as easy to train as dogs, man. <laughs> My son would be a millionaire by now. Uh, let's take another one.
So this one comes from Dylan. Dylan says, Noticed your proper prophecy of the death of retail with the closing of uh, Gordman's near us. Saw this link as well. And it's a link to an article on Bankrate that made the uh, the rounds recently. Uh, major retailers shutting down locations in 2017. It's 22 different companies closing large numbers of stores. I went to it and immediately decided I could not use that article. And I'll tell you why. It's not an article. It's a slideshow. It's completely valid. It absolutely is telling the truth, but it is annoying, and I don't want to send you there. And I also don't want to sit there and, and you know wait for massive page load times with all kinds of uh, advertisements of half-naked people and what everything's turned into the Internet yet and have to go to one slide at a time to get to the list of companies. Assuming that a list like this would be syndicated elsewhere, I typed in uh, 22 retailers closing in 2017, and um, I found a an article on Clark.com, which is the website of a kind of consumer-level radio personality named Clark Howard, who I, I, I can take him or leave him. He's fine. There's nothing wrong with him. Um, it's not a great article or anything, but what it is is a list of the actual companies and the number of stores so that I could give you kind of a, a snapshot of what's going on here. Um, there, there is a, a, a huge amount of stores closing in 2017 that we know of already, right? Because we don't know what the final quarter of the year is going to bring. These are just announced. A company called Perfuma is uh, filing for Chapel 11 and, and closing 64 stores. Sears and Kmart are closing 28 additional stores. Those all appear to be Sears stores, but they have closed approximately 180 Sears and combined Kmart stores in 2017 already. This is an additional 28 after this summer. <clears throat> JCPenney is closing 138 stores. Macy's is closing 68 stores. I want to talk about these last three here, right, before we move on. Sears... JCPenney and Macy's. Do you know what those are? Those are anchor stores. What I mean by anchor stores is a Sears, a Macy's, a JCPenney's. These are stores that you have a big mall and you have a huge, you know, giant department store, Sears and Macy's and, and what have you. And, and, you know, two or three of those in a mall sustains the mall. They have a huge cost that they pay to be there, so the mall owner has a guaranteed source of income. They bring in other shoppers who shop in the peripheral stores, and that makes the whole thing live. Malls can't live without anchor stores. Those are three major anchor stores. Uh, again, Sears already closed 150 this year. Uh, JCPenney's 138 to go, and Macy's 68. Those are, those are major mall closings. Those stores don't exist outside of malls, okay? Uh, Tivana, 379 stores. Jimboree, 350 stores. Uh, that's also a major mall uh, presence store, but not an anchor store. True Religion is closing 27 stores. Ascend Retail Group, 268 stores. Who's Ascend Retail Group? That's Ann Taylor. All right. Uh, Michael Kors, 100 to 125 stores. Uh, Payless Shoe Stores, 512 and counting for the year. Bebe, 180 stores. That's high-end women's fashion crap. Uh, Rue 21, more of the same. Um, 400 stores. Radio Shack, 
1,000 stores. Let me read that because this is kind of a, a symbolic thing. After 96 years in business, Consumer Electronics Retailer Radio Shack will have just 70 corporate and 500 dealer stores nationwide, down from its 7,300 at peak. Over the Memorial Day holiday, Radio Shack closed more than 1,000 stores across the country. Quote, at the end of this month, Radio Shack will be closing its doors in all but 70 retail store locations as we migrate to RadioShack.com. We cannot thank you, the Radio Shack family, enough for sharing in the journey throughout the years, and quotes of the company in a news release. That's a nice way of saying we're failing as a company and we're going to try to run a website. Okay? I am nothing against Radio Shack. I'm just telling you, this is the reality. Abercrombie and Finch, closing 60 stores. Guess, 60 stores. Crocs, 160 stores. The Limited, 250 stores. Wet Seal, 171 stores. American Apparel, 110 stores. BCBG, 120 stores. Gander Mountain, undetermined. After filing for bankruptcy in March, outdoor retailer Gander Mountain has a new owner. Liquidation sales are being held in 126, all but 126, at all 126 stores. But Camping World CEO Marcus Loomis, the new owner, says he intends to keep dozens of locations open. Dozens, huh? I, I, I don't know how these guys are in business. They have terrible service. There's one just down the road from me. It's already going out of business. They built it a year ago. And you go in there any time of the year, even in like peak hunting season, and it's damn near deserted because people know they can't get good service. It's terribly run. Uh, so that might have a different problem than some of these other ones. H.H. Gregg, 220 stores. GameStop, closing 150 stores. Staples is closing 70 stores. CVS, closing 70 stores. CVS, it might be mitigated. They might be growing more than they're closing. If they're closing, you know, there's so many of those. You could have a net gain even with 70 closing. Family Christian stores, 240 stores. And uh, this Richard Clark's takeaway is use those gift cards ASAP. So that's why I'm not real impressed with his article. I don't really care about gift cards. Um, this is something I did say would happen this year. I said in early 2016 that 2016-17 would be a, a, a year of massive closings. But here's what else I said. It will only be the beginning. And the number of closings by the year 2020 will make 2017 look like a day at Disneyland. And that's where we're headed. But there's something important to understand about the overriding theme here. Most of these stores that are closing are boutique or old school department. Walmart's not closing stores yet. Costco, not closing stores. Sam's Club. Not closing stores. Okay? Grocery stores like Albertsons and Kroger's are not closing stores. Again, yet. It is these boutique but not unique stores that are closing. Pier 1 Imports has been devastated for a long time. It's a perfect example of that. It's a boutique store, but it's not really unique. It's the same crap that's available everywhere else with a different label on it or a different angle on the marketing. Now, the niche stores that are truly niche stores, like it's the only one in town that you can go to for it, those are still doing fairly well. But if you think that the problem with something like a Kmart store closing or a Macy's closing is just the Amazon effect, I, I, I think you're really missing what's happening with consumers. We're weary of shopping as a hobby. I know there's a lot of people that aren't yet, but as a society, as a trend, we're weary of it. 
And I think the Amazon effect is more the concept that if you really want something, you can get it. So you don't need to be out there looking for it to see if you can get it. And once people kind of get on the Amazon train or just the buying online train, they be, actually I think they begin to buy less in total because they they don't get the pull-through buys. So what I mean, like, people go to the mall and they go for a pair of jeans, especially women. I know I'm going to get flagged for that, but it's the truth. Guy goes to the mall to get a pair of jeans. He probably goes to Sears or somewhere like that. He goes, I need a pair of blue jeans. There's the blue jeans. He goes to a grid, waist, length, reaches in, grabs a pair of them, looks at them, yeah, walks up, pays, doesn't even try them on, pays for them and leaves. Leaves the whole mall. Women and young people, they come to get a pair of jeans. They try on 15 different pairs of jeans. Put all these different clothes on. Then they walk to the mall. Then they go get an Orange Julius or a Starbucks coffee or something like that. Then they talk with their girlfriends or they hang out with their friends. And they go down in this store. Oh, that's neat. And they buy this. And they go over here and they buy that. They come out with bags and bags of shit and they want to get one thing. And this happens happens to me. I know you just think I picked on women. Grocery store. Happens to me all the time. I go to the grocery and get two things. I come home with ten things. And one of the things I went to get, I forgot to get. Right? When we go into a retail environment, we get distracted. There's a lot of science into how all that stuff's organized. And online shopping, they try to do a lot of the same thing. Customers who bought this also bought that, but it's not the same. You know, I need this, so I ordered it, now it's gone. So I think the overall purchasing of consumer goods is in decline. And I think people more and more, like, like leaning out, paring down, are becoming things that are not just things that people that are out of money are doing. I think that decluttering and reducing the total amount of crap in your life is something that's coming in vogue with people. Like, we had 50 years of raw consumerism. I think people are finally going, okay, that's enough of this. So it's a combination of things coming together. And we're getting to a point where anything you want can be delivered to you with almost 100% automation. And it's reducing the human need. Translation. Jobs will continue to dwindle. Because I know when you hear something like, you know, uh, Tivana is closing a few hundred stores or what have you, uh, it's really easy to say, well, that's not really that big of an impact. Well, it might be 40, 50 people a store in total jobs. Plus the number of people in a corporate overriding entity that oversaw all of that and made sure logistics happened for it. But a lot of times when these stores close... It's one thing when a store closes in Dallas. You want a job in Dallas right now? If you can't get a job, there's something wrong with you. Okay? Especially at this kind of level of a job. Or if you, you know, you want a job in Fort Worth or Arlington or something. I'm using cities that are around me. But there's a lot of small towns. You close the mall. You create a spiraling effect for the entire town's economy. Because there's, you know, if there's only, I don't know, 10,000, 14,000 people in a town. And 200 people lose jobs. That has a real effect on the totality of the whole economy. It's not like just when Johnny lost his job. It's, it's a bunch of people. And this is only going to get worse. And we need to start thinking about how we adapt as entrepreneurs, as the new 1099 generation contractors, etc., to this new reality. Don't think it's going away just because we don't talk about it all the time. It's still here. And it's, it's happening, and we're still at this, the stage where it's happening like, you know, as an analogy right now, it would be a levee being breached. 
There's a levee that's about to breach, I think, Lake Columbia or something like that down south of Houston right now. They, they, they know it's going to go. And it's just seeping through right now. And they propped it up with like sandbags and wood and shit. But they're telling people, get out, get out, get out, get out, because they know it's going to go. It, and there was just a, a reporter standing on a levee. Well, we don't see anything wrong here. Apparently it's up there. Can't see the problem. But it's already happening. And eventually what happens? It caves in and it goes. It's like a flood. And everybody goes, how did this all happen so fast? Well, it didn't. It took a long time to happen. That's what's happening with this sector and many other sectors of the economy right now. The water's seeping into and weeping out of the levee on the other side. It's beginning to pass through. The impermeable has become permeable. The damage is being done inside, and sooner or later, you're going to see these massive collapses of these individual industries, and then they're going to start kicking each other off. And everybody's going to be, everybody's going to be running around like a chicken with their head cut off. Don't do it. There will be adaptation that we can take to it, but you have to be aware of it and prepared for it, or it's going to hit you like a ton of bricks. Let's take another one. Final story today comes from uh, Charlie, and actually comes from a lot of people. I've been hearing about this like crazy because they're like, you said it was going to happen. and Yeah, I did, and it looks like it's going to. Uh, Estonia considers issuing Estcoin, the first ever government-backed ICO. Let me read the article to you. The Republic of Estonia has announced it is considering creating a government-backed cryptocurrency, tentatively named Estcoins. By issuing S-Coin, the Estonian government may hold an initial coin offering, or ICO, with the aim to allow people to invest in the country directly. With regard to technological innovations and advancements, Estonia is a leader, being the first country to launch e-residency program. This program allows e-residents to access government services like physical Estonian citizens, albeit digitally. Kasper Korhos, the director of Estonia's e-residency program, announced the proposal on August 22nd. That's my son's birthday, by the way. Uh, Korhos believes that the introduction of S-Coin and its ICO would be beneficial for both physical and e-residents of the country. The ICO would allow investors to directly participate in the growth of the country in a way that is not possible with current reforms or international fundraising. Vitek Bulletin, Ethereum, I, v, v, I can't ever say his name. The founder of Ethereum and supporter of the S-Coin project believes this would foster a great feeling of cohesion between the country and investors, saying... And an ICO with e-residency ecosystem would create a strong incentive alignment between e-residents and the fund. Uh, and beyond the economic aspect makes the e-residents feel more like a community since they are more things they can do together. In addition, Corhost revealed it would be possible to use the S-Coins for more than just fundraising. The coin could be used to power smart contracts, notary services, and even payments between companies in Estonia as well as internationally using APIs. And you can read the rest of the article if you want. I have a link in the show notes. It's about twice as much as what I read. I want to talk about not, I was right, I was right, because eh, whatever. You know, if you say enough things, you're right about a lot of them. Uh, and this is something you can really see coming, honestly, if you just were looking for it. But what is Estonia really doing here? What is Estonia really up to? I want you to think about this. They set up this e-resident program. You could become a resident of Estonia online. Get an e-resident uh, identity card. You can do business in Estonia remotely. Now, you're still subject to the laws of your country, but you can do that. And... For a lot of people in a lot of countries other than the United States, it's far more advantageous. The, the, the country that no other country's banks and economic system wants to touch 
is America. We are the untouchables in the economics of the world. Our government is so insistent on stealing all the money that it can from its citizens, it has made it completely unprofitable for a bank, let's say, in Australia to do business with an American citizen. It's not impossible, but it's very difficult, and it, it's still so inherently limiting. In many other countries, if you do business in another country, it's between you and that country. Until you repatriate funds, they don't care. You're doing something in Estonia or Spain or whatever from Portugal, Well, now I should leave that out because the EU has ruined that. But let's say that you are in Spain and you're doing business in Japan. And you're doing stuff in Japan and it doesn't come back to Spain. They don't care. You're not using their resources. So why should they? And it's not 100% that way, but it's, it's a lot that way. The United States says if you do business with our citizens, we have to have all this reporting and all. And most countries just go, we don't care. We don't want anything to do with it. So... You've got this really advantageous thing to get companies to put their headquarters in Estonia, to do banking in Estonia. And some people would look at this and say, well, this is just you know, good old-fashioned global republicanism. They're trying to compete. Okay, that misses the point. Why? Well, they want prosperity and lots of money. Yeah. So do a lot of other countries. Why Estonia? Why this tiny little country? Why are they doing all this? Estonia was part of the USSR. They acquired their independence with many other components and pieces of the, uh, of, of, uh, the world when the Soviet Union fell apart, leaving behind the Russian Federation and lots of other places like Ukraine and Georgia, Kazakhstan, etc. Of all of the nations that were formed out of the Soviet Union... They have become probably per capita the most prosperous. In other words, they have the most to lose. And they are probably the least able to militarily defend themselves from ever being sucked back in. Think about it. I mean, yeah, the United States will do something, but will we really... You know, we didn't do the square root of F all about Crimea and started the, in spite of the fact that we lost our shit about it. We didn't do anything, and we weren't going to do anything. And we, I think, prank, frankly, we have mischaracterized that um, because Crimea belonged to Russia until Khrushchev gave it to the Ukraine because he was from the Ukraine like a gift. And the people did vote in massive majority to go back to Russia. So it's a little bit different. But if you're an Estonian citizen, an Estonian official, and you look down and you see Russia just walk into the Crimea and just take it back. And you see all this conflict with Ukraine going on right now. And by the way, I'm a Ukrainian descendant. Okay, My grandparents on one side are 100% Ukrainian. Uh, I am a second generation American of Ukraine descent. But you have flat out fascist Nazism going on in Ukraine right now. On our side, big air quotes, the United States' side. Okay? And that's part of what's creating this hostility between basically Ukrainians that are Ukrainian separatists, they want to stay Ukraine, and basically Ukrainians that want to go back to Russia. And you're Estonian, you look in the south and you're seeing all this go on, and Putin's always talking about how, you know, the, the glory days of the, the Soviet Union and the new Russian world, and you start thinking, wonder if that bastard wants to take us back against our will. Or even set up something like happened in Crimea where we think we want to go back. I, I just don't know. 
So what is Estonia trying to do? What is Estonia's real goal? And in fact, it's looking at all types of potential nastiness. You know? Poland is like the one country that seems to have its, its mind straight in, in Europe right now. But yet that could create polarization with other nations. We take for granted that there won't be another world war here in the United States because we didn't live through two of them. Europeans are a little bit more leery of war than we are because the last two world wars happened on their soil. You see what's going on here? Okay, so, World War II. What country was right in the middle of all the shit that never really suffered a second in World War II. Everybody left them alone. Switzerland, right? Now, why did everybody leave Switzerland alone? Is it because Switzerland said, we're, we are neutral, right? We are neutral. That, that's not what, come on. Because... The, 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 the Nazis really thought if we march into Switzerland, their, their marksmen are so good, they'll kill us all. You don't think that if, if Hitler really wanted to, he couldn't have launched a Brits Blitzkrieg on frickin' Switzerland and took it over? Really? You really don't? You don't think it would have been a hell of a prize? Why has Switzerland always been left alone? Because who really makes the decisions like this? The people with the money. And the oligarchs in Germany, money in Switzerland. The oligarchs in the United States, money in Switzerland. The oligarchs in the United Kingdom, money in Switzerland. The oligarchs all over the world have money in Switzerland at the time of the Second World War. So we're just going to leave that alone. The more you have of... The, the, the richest people in the world, the people with mind-boggling wealth, occupying economically and being partnering with a country, the, the easier it is for that country to maintain neutrality. No one wants to screw it up. Estonia is trying to be the new Switzerland, guys. They're making it easy so that the, the common man can do it. So that also has a whole different play. On basically, like, you have to sell a society on a war. So, first of all, the oligarchs have to want the war. And then the society has to buy into the war. If you have a new Switzerland, where everybody has a vested stake, and it's this little island that seems pretty defenseless, it's hard to drum up support for a war, an annexation, and... All of a sudden, the oligarchs on both sides are looking at the oligarchs on the other side going, don't you do it. And the other ones are going, don't you do it. They're arguing about both of them staying out instead of which one of them is going to take it. Now, is, is there really a danger that Russia is going to annex Estonia? I don't think so. But they could. But if you're an Estonian, it's a little easier for me to say, sit in my ass in Texas, isn't it? Then you can just kind of look over there and go, yeah, they're over there. <laughs> Estonia wants to be the, the modern Switzerland. That's what's really going on. Now, what does it mean as far as Estcoin? Um, a nationally backed cryptocurrency is going to change the world. 
Not necessarily all for the good either, because the whole point of cryptocurrency is you guys suck. We don't want you, and we don't want your money, and we don't want your banking system. We don't need you in between people in a voluntary uh, arrangement, a voluntary transaction. The, cryptocurrency is anarcho techno-anarchism at its finest. It's like, you can't make your own money. Well, we just did. Well, no one will believe it. Well, we just did. Well, it's worthless. It's worth 14 cents a unit. Okay, now it's, it's dollar parity. Ah, it's a it's a scam. It's tulip mania. It'll never work. Okay, well, that's worth like four grand to one. Okay, and people have become billionaires off of it, and it works. People have accepted it, and you can keep talking shit if you want to, but we're actually fracturing into all these different things, and some of them are going to suck and blow, but others are going to become new ecosystems within themselves to enable... Voluntary association, voluntary transactions. So when a nation does this, it takes on a different air, doesn't it? It's like, okay, well, we'll just co-opt that. That's nice what you got over there. Be shamed if we go. Oh, look, we did. We co-opted it. But I say, I don't think it's as easy with cryptocurrency because it still works. So it's like it's like a parallel system. They have to compete with it. But what it will do is totally legitimize it, and will totally legitimize the Ethereum platform if they do it on Ethereum. And it will start enabling a new form of globalism. And I know people hate that word. And the way it's usually used, I hate it too. What I mean by globalism, though, is I believe that if nations can create systems where they actually create like these e-residency programs, that even though they might come with limited privileges at first as far as what protections you would get, being able to get a passport or something like that, that over time they can morph into that. They become basically virtual nations. Where a, a, a country like Estonia says, yeah, we're like this little tiny country, but we have like 200 billion, you know, 200 million uh, citizens that live throughout the world that maintain a dual residency. And now that there's 200 million of them, we'll decide. You, you won't tell us to decide. We'll decide whether we give them a passport or not. Oh, United States, you don't want us to. Yeah, we don't care. Passports for you. Passport. It could happen. It could happen. Right. Well, the United States doesn't recognize that passport. That's fine. Every other country in the world does. Passports aren't just for leaving. Sometimes they're like for doing business in other countries. And sometimes they are for leaving. So you have a U.S. passport and an Estonian passport. You leave the United States on a U.S. passport, and you travel on an Estonian one or an Ecuadorian one. I think Ecuador is – I still think they're the sleeper in this. They don't have the technology, though, that, that people like Estonia have access to. But Ecuador just seems to me like it's this, this, this waiting – Thing to rise in, in, in South America because they have not a perfect system by any means. In some ways, ours is much better. But there's a certain idealism within their system of right and wrong and freedom. It's 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 very encouraging. We'll see if they ever do it. But yeah, Estonia is probably going to release Estcoin or something like that. Some country will very very soon. They have to. And when it when it happens, it's going to change the world and good and bad ways, because it will be on some levels a co-opting of cryptocurrency. So next up, I want to talk about our YouTube channel of the day. I really like this one. I've been going through all the stuff that's been sent in to me and trying to pick some stuff out that's a little different, so not every other channel that we do is like a bushcrafting channel or something like that, or a, a prepping channel or a gardening channel. I like all that stuff, but I want diversity. This one is cool. The channel is called Smarter Every Day. Five million subscribers. 
And it's really all kinds of really cool stuff. A lot of times using like high-speed film to explain things. He has a video on how Houdini died in slow motion. Um, he has a video of an AK-47 being fired underwater at 27,000 frames per second. Um, and I think that one of the coolest videos is the one he has as his featured video right now. It's trying to learn a back how to ride a backwards bicycle. And, and all this is, is, it's not like the bicycle goes backwards, but when you turn the handlebars left, the front wheel goes right, and when you turn the handlebars right, the front wheel goes left, which, of course, is how you maintain your balance. And he's not found a single person that can get on that bike and ride it. He did force himself to learn how to ride it. It took him eight months. He had his kid figure out how to sort of kind of basically ride it in only two weeks. kid's only six years old. And it's about the neural pathways and how like reprogramming that algorithm is so difficult. It's it's pretty cool channel. Again, it's called Smarter Every Day, and there is a link in today's show notes to it. Next up, let me remind you, you can support our show really easily just by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. You go to tspaz.com, you can see all my product reviews on Amazon, and as long as you're shopping online through tspaz.com, no matter what you buy, you are supporting the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. Today's item of the day is one that's been featured quite a few times already, but I keep bringing it back because to me it is one of the best pieces of everyday carry kit that you can have. It is the Gerber EAB Lite Knife. Well, this is a little knife that looks about like a money clip. It's about what it looks, and actually makes a pretty good money clip. It holds a standard razor blade in it, and it folds and it locks. And when your blade gets dull, like most razor blade knives, you can take a little screw out, flip the blade around, and use it until the other side's dull, and then you can throw it away. And I love this because I don't take my expensive Patrick Rorman-made neck knife off and stick it into a, a box of gookie-ookie tape. I don't dull my good knives on things that aren't really that important, and it always works and it's always there. And frankly, you can buy 100 blades for about 10 bucks. And uh, that basically is 200 cutting edges for about 10 bucks, which is, you know, about, what, a, a nickel a piece? And to me, that's just a better use of a blade than using your good blades for random everyday tasks that, you know, mar them up and dull them. And again, it's always there and it's always razor sharp. Uh, I have given away my technique to make sure like I don't hurt garbage men and stuff like that in the past. And uh, it works pretty well. I keep, uh, I, I used to do this anyway. I keep a, a box of blades and a roll of tape in my kind of my junk drawer. And whenever I think that knife needs a new blade, I take the old blade out and I put a piece of tape on it and I throw it in the garbage. Uh, somebody wrote in, I thought this was a pretty cool hack and I was thinking about it today and so I decided to run this as an item of the day again. He said basically he just takes an old pill bottle Right, So like you make a prescription pill bottle with a safety cap on it. He keeps that in his junk drawer. When you replace a blade, you just stick an old blade in there. And when the bottle's full, you just throw it away. And that way it's you know never going to end up coming through a, 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 a bag and, and cutting somebody. So I, I think that's a pretty good technique. And there's probably other things you could do that with. But, you know, prescription pill bottle, if you have them around, that'd be pretty good. I think it doesn't even need to be like a, a, a safety cap one. Like any kind of a small disposable bottle. Uh, for anything that you use would be a good way to do that. So that's my new method now. I thought I'd pass that along. Again, it's called the Gerber EAB Lite. EAB stands for Exchange Blade. They're about six, seven bucks. And uh, man, I I can't tell you. I use the damn thing constantly, and uh, it makes my expensive knife blades with their really keen edges 
They're used for things that a knife really should be used for. It just makes me go longer in between sharpenings, and that's just a good way to live. And again, it's always there, and it's always razor sharp. With that, let's talk about our song of the day today. I This is one I learned something from. This is called Right Now. Kind of like everybody get together right now, the song that we did yesterday. It is by Chris Gaines. Who the hell is Chris Gaines? It's actually Garth Brooks. John Adam, who sent it to us, says, Garth Brooks had big plans for this album that never materialized. It produced a couple of minor hits, but to me, it's best appreciated his departure from Brooks's normal music style. The chorus was borrowed from the song Get Together by the Youngbloods, released in 1967, which was played yesterday. And um, apparently what Garth Brooks did is he created this character, Chris Gaines, that was going to be in a movie, there's going to be a movie uh, about this, this like rock singer that had um, issues with the world, so to say. And he created this false persona, not just for the movie, but because he wanted to release this music as a rock artist without using any of his star power. Without people like, going, of course I'll buy that album. It's from Garth Brooks. So he basically tried to make it a second time on his talent in a different way. And what I thought was interesting about this, it made me think of an interview that I, I watched with him, you know, before his retirement, before retirement, whatever you call it, like his pre-retirement retirement. Um, and they were asking him, like, do you ever see yourself being in a movie? And I think it's long before this was ever planned. He said, yeah, I'd, I'd like to do something with acting in a movie or something like that. And uh, they said, so have you looked into it? Because, yeah, I've been offered some parts, but they're all like cowboy parts and stuff like that, and I, I don't want to do that. And they said, well, why not? He goes, because that's what everybody expects. That's, that's, you know, that's not acting. Being yourself is not acting. It's, it's just being yourself. And if I'm going to act, I want to act. I want to be something different. He's like, I want to do something that's like the bad guy, or I want to really scare you. I thought that was kind of cool, and I've always remembered that. And I see this, and I go, yeah, that was that was that part of him coming out. Uh, but this song is kind of like, uh, I, wanna, I don't really want to call it rap. It's kind of like that, that, that place between just speaking in a song and rap. And then it's got this you know, chorus of everybody get together, try to love one another. And there's a lot of, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. Listen to the words. I think it might intrigue you, and again... Garth Brooks as Chris Gaines, uh, extremely talented guy. Uh, this isn't half bad. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me try how to live that better life. Tom's going to tell for me if they don't.